Please turn in your Bibles to the opening of the Word of God, the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read together verses 1 through 15. Genesis 3, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1, on down through verse 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. But she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, in this hour now, please deliver us from all dullness of mind, from all distraction, and please come by your Spirit and make us all alive to the Bible, alive to your Word. May you speak to us through it. May you instruct us and edify us. Come now and be our teacher through the Scriptures. And please, Lord, so work in us, so stir us and move us to give all attention to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today we begin a new sermon series titled, The Christ is Coming. And this series of sermons, the plan anyway, is written to be about 10 to 12 weeks and will take us to some of the primary Old Testament texts that point to the coming of Christ. So my plan is for this series to take us basically through the remainder of the summer. And then in late August, early September, around that time, I plan to begin a months-long, probably a years-long exposition of Matthew's gospel. So this summer series 
that we begin today is in some ways preparatory for that series. In fact, I have three primary reasons for preaching this particular series of sermons this summer. Number one, I want to help us put our Bibles together. I want us to see that what was foretold in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, that what is anticipated in the Old Testament is accomplished in the New Testament. I want to do this by making us familiar with some of the main passages in the Old Testament that point us to Christ's coming. Now, I'm not going to take us to every passage in the Old Testament that points to Christ's coming. If I did that, uh, we might be in the series until Christ's second coming. Uh, What I want to do is to simply take you to some of the high points, some of the more well-known passages that point to the coming of Christ. And my hope is that many of these passages will become memorable to us, that they will stick with us, and that all of us would be enabled to turn to them again and again throughout the remainder of our Christian lives uh, to learn and understand who the Christ is and what is anticipated in His coming. Second reason to preach this series, by directing us to these passages, I want us to better understand who Christ is and what He came to be and do. Now, you may think this is a bit of a backwards approach. Uh, Why go to the Old Testament to do this? Wouldn't it be far better just to go to the New Testament and see Christ there living and breathing and acting as we have Him there in the Gospels and in subsequent passages? Won't any picture we get from the Old Testament be in some sense incomplete? In other words, how could knowledge of the Old Testament picture of Christ improve upon the New Testament picture we have of Christ? Well, it might work somewhat like this. Uh, My son and I have been watching uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show on Disney Plus, and um, we prepared him for this. We, We were having a countdown that we would do every morning. And what I did for my son is I allowed him to watch a few of the Star Wars movies that are a little more age appropriate for him, and I explained to him what a Jedi is, and I explained to him who the evil empire is, and I told him who the various characters are, and this was all to prepare us for the fact that Obi-Wan Kenobi is coming, the show is coming out, and I wanted him to have the categories and the context to enter into the full joy of that new show, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, if you watch Obi-Wan Kenobi now, streaming on Disney+, and you didn't have all that background and all that context, you would be thoroughly confused. Uh, You pick up, there's something mysterious about this relationship between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader. And there's the light side and the dark side, and there's the force, and he apparently was Anakin Skywalker. And if you don't know what Star Wars is, this has to sound super nerdy to you right now. (laughs) But but what's the point? Those earlier stories and and sort of the prolegomena of, of Star Wars sets up these big categories and explains to us who these characters are going to be and what they're going to do. And then when you finally see the later shows and iterations of Star Wars, you just see them sort of acting out these things you've already been told about. But see, those foretellings of what's going to happen in future episodes of Star Wars help you to understand with greater clarity what those events actually mean and their significance. In some ways, the Old Testament functions in that way. We're told, it's announced to us, it's foretold who the Christ is, who He will be, what He will accomplish. And then when we get to the New Testament, Christ doesn't always narrate to us exactly what He's doing. He's just doing it. And if we have the Old Testament context and the background, we understand the significance of the things that He's doing. Of course, Christ Himself and the New Testament writers at times will clue us into Old Testament prophecies, but they don't always do that. And so in order to perfectly understand and better understand who Jesus is, we need this Old Testament data. 
And there are some things about who the Christ is, who He will be, what His work is, that in some places are better expounded in Old Testament passages or expounded more clearly in Old Testament passages than even we have in the New in some places. And that is the reason for the method that we'll pursue here. The goal in this series is meant to help us in knowing Christ better by exposing us to some of the major passages that tell us who the Christ is and what it is He would do. And then the third and final reason for this series is I simply want to ready us for this major consideration of Matthew's gospel. When we get to that first line in Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, I want us to, to sort of have this feeling of, yes, finally, we're here. We're ready to see what the Lord has revealed in His Word about who the Christ is. We've been preparing all summer for this, and so I hope that will build anticipation for that series. Today I want to start at the beginning. I want to start with Genesis 3.15 and the Lord's words to Satan. I'll read them again, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The background of this passage is surely familiar to you, whether you're a Christian or not or have been in church very long, you probably know the background to these words in Genesis 3.15. I'll simply summarize the background by way of five facts or five statements. Fact number one, God created the world and it was very good. Fact number two, God created Adam and Eve and He made them morally upright. Adam and Eve were sinless in the garden. Fact number three. God placed the man and the woman in the garden to keep the garden and to serve the Lord and to be fruitful. And as He did so, He gave them one prohibition. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fact number four, Adam and Eve sinned against God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent deceived the woman, and she ate, and Eve gave to her husband also, and he ate. And then fact number five, In an act of sheer, unmerited grace and mercy, God goes after them and initiates His plan to save His people from their sins in the context of their sin and failure. So I'd like to open up now Genesis 3, verse 15, under three main headings. These headings will shape our exposition of this verse. Point number one, enmity between the serpent and the woman. Enmity between the serpent and the woman. Point number two, enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Point number three, enmity between the serpent and one particular offspring of the woman. You see the progression here. Consider with me point number one, enmity between the serpent and the woman. This is said plainly in the first line of Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Consider what has just taken place. Eve has perpetrated an act of cosmic sin and rebellion. She has betrayed her Maker. She has violated the one prohibition given to her, and in so doing, she has entered into a kind of confederacy with Satan himself. She has allied herself with the serpent against God. The serpent was successful in deceiving Eve and in cementing a kind of bond between him and her. And through the serpent's deception, Eve has entered into a sinful alliance with the evil one to do his will and to disobey God. Now all of this is discovered, so to speak. Cursing and punishment will come to each actor in this story, the serpent and Adam and Eve. 
But first it will come to the serpent, and that's the context in which our verse appears. What does the Lord say to the serpent? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. What does that mean? What is the Lord saying? What is He communicating? What the Lord says to Satan here is that the woman's alignment with him, her being in league with him, her entering into the serpent's deception, her willingness to do Satan's bidding, this alliance that exists between Eve and Satan, God is going to break it all up. Through His sovereign power, through the unilateral working of His grace, He is going to introduce enmity into their relationship, hostility, warfare between the serpent and the woman, animosity. The promise here, friends, is nothing short of regeneration. This is new birth, heart change of the highest possible order. The confederacy between Satan and Eve, God will abolish it. And where Eve was once glad to do Satan's bidding, she will be so changed that her posture toward the evil one will be one of enmity, of hostility, and of warfare. You appreciate exactly what God is promising here. He's going to change Eve's heart. Where once she was willing to go along with Satan to do his bidding, to align herself with Satan and sin, God is going to transform her. He's going to undertake to introduce a new dynamic into their relationship, a new power a change at the heart level. She will become one who is at war with Satan and his will, one who hates his ways, one who struggles against him. God puts enmity between her and the serpent. This is the promise of regeneration. You notice God is the one who acts to bring about this change. He creates this whole new situation, a whole new relationship between Eve and the serpent and Eve and her maker where she was once allied with the serpent against God, now through this change that God brings about, she will be allied with God against the serpent. Where once she made her bed in sin, it will be made again in righteousness. Where once she delighted to do the will of her master, the devil, she will be brought to a place of delight and to do the will of her maker. God says, I will, I will work, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This sinful misalliance will not be permitted to continue. This confederacy, uh, this alliance, this bond that had been forged between Satan and the woman, whereby the woman did the bidding of the serpent, God's going to end it. And more than that, God is going to introduce a new dynamic of hostility and enmity between the woman and the serpent. Friends, in regeneration and new birth, this is exactly what the Lord does for each one of us. We who, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, were formerly dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, who were following the course of this world, who were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, for us, who are the children of God and have been born again and have been regenerated by His Spirit, God breaks up our alliance with sin and wickedness. He places within our hearts by the power of His Spirit, hostility and enmity and warfare against the evil one. He undertakes to create within us animosity against Satan in all his ways. He, like He did for Eve, puts enmity between us and the serpent. So, my friend, if you are in Christ, if you have been born again, He has done this 
for you. Where once you loved sin, where once you presented yourself to Satan to do his bidding, God by his sovereign power, by divine fiat, by sheer grace and unmerited favor, he has placed within you by the power of his spirit enmity between you and the evil one. We should all see ourselves in Eve here. If you have been born again, what, what happened? I was reflecting on my own past and my own sinful life, and I, I can sense there was a time when I was perfectly satisfied to live in sin. Made friends with sin. I didn't have clues as to all the operations of Satan and all of that, but there was no warfare against sin. There was no hostility or enmity between me and Satan and me and my sin. But I can sense, and I hope you can too, in the process of time, God introduced a new dynamic, a new power, a new relationship between us and Satan, between us and sin. God is pleased in regeneration to put enmity between His people, as He did for Eve, to put enmity between Eve and the serpent. Well, this is what we see first in Genesis 3.15, the Lord has put enmity between the serpent and between the woman. There will be hostility between Eve and the serpent, where once there was an alliance. Now the second major heading, enmity between the woman and the serpent. Now consider with me secondly, enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What does that second line envision? I think a few observations can help us understand what the Lord means by this statement. First of all, appreciate that a plural group of people is envisioned here. Because there's just two people at enmity with one another in that first line. In the second line, it's a plural group of people now. The word offspring is a collective noun. There are two lines that are going to proceed, one from Satan, one from the woman. They will both include a plural group of people. You'll have the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Second, appreciate that both the serpent and the woman, they'll both have offspring. There will be some people who have Satan as their father, and there will be others who will have Eve in some sense as their mother. These two lines that are going to go. Satan is the father of one line, Eve is the mother of the other. Third, appreciate that whatever God is doing between the serpent and the woman, namely putting enmity between the two of them, whatever God is doing between the serpent and the woman, He's going to do between their offspring also. He's going to put enmity between their offspring, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. God is going to create for them also hostility and enmity between each other. As the Lord would bring Eve to a place of regeneration, of warfare against Satan, of going from being an ally alongside Satan to being a combatant against him, so God is going to create this same kind of situation between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. They will be at war with one another, have enmity toward one another. Satan and those who follow his will, and those are the woman's offspring who will be at odds against Satan and his wicked ways. Now, if this is true, then who are the woman's offspring, this group of people, this line that's going to come from the woman? Well, they will be all those who, like Eve, are truly regenerate, those who are the elect of God. They themselves, like Eve, will be so changed as to become hostile to Satan and his forces. 
They will be so animated in their inner being by God's Spirit as to hate sin and wickedness and evil and Satan and all of his ways. Thus, what is envisioned here by this phrase, the offspring of the woman, is none other than God's elect people throughout the ages. Those whom God chooses and causes to be born again, in them, God will put enmity towards Satan in all his ways. This, friends, is essentially the first promise in the Bible that God will have a people. He said, there's going to be this line, there's going to be these offspring, I will have a people. And between them and the offspring of Satan, I'm going to put enmity between them. There's going to be a great war, and that war is anticipated in this passage. There will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You see that in the text itself. I'll put enmity between the woman and the serpent, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But of course, the strongest support for this conclusion, namely that the offspring of the woman are the elect of God throughout time, God's regenerate people, the strongest support for this conclusion is not actually contained in Genesis 3.15, though I think it's there also. The strongest support for this conclusion is simply what we see in the rest of the Bible in subsequent revelation. What do you have in the rest of the Bible if not these two offsprings? these two lines that diverge from one another, the offspring of Satan who are enslaved to do his will, and the offspring of Eve who is said to be the mother of all living. I think that means more than that everyone who has a heartbeat is a child of Eve. She's in a deeper sense the mother of all living. On the one hand, with respect to Satan's offspring, this is why we see Jesus in John 8, saying to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. You're part of his offspring. You're part of his line, all anticipated in Genesis 3.15. It's why Paul could refer to those outside of Christ in Ephesians 2, as we saw a moment ago, as those who are following the prince of the power of the air. That's the wicked one, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is why he could say in 2 Corinthians 4.4, with reference to unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan said to be the God of this present age. He has a people. That's why John could say in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Simply put, Satan has a line. He has people that are regarded as his offspring, that are regarded as his children, his people. But the woman also, we see, has a line. She has her offspring, a plural group of people. It is those who, like her, are so changed as to be at war with evil and with Satan. And this line, these offspring, come from Eve, are reckoned among her children. They are eventually taken up in the line of Abraham. Adam and Eve's line is traced directly to Abraham, about 20 generations, and Abraham is born. And as we'll see next week, we who have faith are said to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. This line is not reckoned through blood, through a DNA connection. It's reckoned through regeneration and faith. Those who are the children of Abraham and the children of Eve, it is those who have been born again and have been regenerated and have put their faith and trust in Christ who are Abraham's seed and thereby the woman's seed. The offspring, the line that proceeds from the woman through Abraham and through all the elect throughout time who are regenerated and have faith, they are those who are saved. 
For all those who are of the offspring of the woman, they are at odds with Satan. And this is what we see later on in the New Testament, isn't it? God's people, the offspring of the woman, in conflict with Satan, in warfare against the wicked one. This adds new meaning, doesn't it, to Paul's words in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's Paul saying? You're living out the drama, the great cosmic warfare that was anticipated, foretold so long ago. And God is going to give to His offspring, to Eve's offspring, the victory. This adds new meaning to James' words in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are those who have enmity put within us against Satan. We should resist him. We're at war against him, hostile toward him, and he is hostile toward us. We're to resist the devil and he will flee from us. This adds meaning to Paul's words in Ephesians six ten on the armor of God. What do we learn there? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why do we need the shield of faith? so that we could extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. We're in this great conflict against Satan, we who are of this line that is promised in Genesis 3.15. There's a passage I'd like to encourage you all to read on your own time. It would just take us too far afield this morning. It's found in Revelation chapter 12. I'll just summarize the passage for you. Complexities related to Revelation chapter 12. But in that chapter, this vision that the apostle John sees, there's this woman and she's going to give birth to this offspring. And there is this dragon who's said to be that ancient serpent, the devil. And there's this warfare between this woman who's going to deliver this child and the serpent. And she delivers this child who is said to be a ruler of the nations. He'll rule with a rod of iron. But it doesn't just anticipate a singular child. It anticipates those who are going to follow the commands of Christ. For them also, they will be at warfare. Her offspring, a plural group of people, they will be in this great conflict, this epic war with the dragon, that ancient serpent. So we read Revelation 12, verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who's in combat with the evil one? It's the woman's offspring. Who are they? Well, they're those like us who keep the commands of the Lord, who hold fast to the gospel, the testimony of Jesus. There's this great conflict that defines in some sense the whole world, and it's anticipated, it's first foretold in Genesis 3, 15, in this statement, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. What is anticipated is warfare with the evil one. All of God's people throughout the ages promised first in Genesis 3.15. We are part of the unfolding drama. All of us here who belong to the Lord, all of us here who have been regenerate, who have had the Spirit of God put in us, who've had enmity between us and the evil one placed within us, we're here in Genesis 3.15. Uh, this is the promise, friends, that you will be saved. You, like Eve, will enter into this great warfare against the wicked one. All right, now let's move to the third 
and final heading. We've seen enmity between the serpent and the woman. Secondly, enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Consider with me thirdly, enmity between the serpent and one particular offspring of the woman. Not the most artful heading. I went for clarity over being artful. Enmity between the serpent and one particular offspring of the woman. Let's read verse 15 again. Hear the progression. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Singular. Two people combat together. And between your offspring and her offspring. Pull a group of people in conflict together. He... Singular noun, pronoun, third person. He, referring to one person, shall bruise or crush, depending on what translation you're reading, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the focus in the second half of the verse becomes an individual offspring of the woman. He, this one, from your line, he will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And for his part, the serpent will bruise or crush your heel. The same verb is used to describe what he will do to the serpent, what the serpent will do to him. But the blows are going to be struck in different places. For the offspring of the woman, this individual offspring, he will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise or crush his heel. What is being revealed here? A human being is going to come from Eve's line. There will be a man from among her offspring. And this man will actually destroy the serpent. He will crush the serpent's head. You crush a serpent's head, they're dead. There's no coming back from that. He will vanquish the serpent. He will end the serpent. Now, now the, the previous two headings, previous two individuals and then groups that combat each other, Eve and the serpent, her offspring, his offspring, maybe that's a fair fight. This one is not. Uh, this warfare is going to be ended decisively by him, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, crushing Satan's head. And Satan, all he will manage is to bruise his heel. Now, you're Moses writing this. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. What on earth do you think he made of this? It's just a little line. He will crush the serpent's head. He will bruise his heel. This had to be an extraordinary mystery to him and to all of the Israelites. And it is mysterious. Something epic is clearly anticipated in these words. But what is it? The Lord is putting enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Okay, true enough. Moses would have seen this in his own day. He probably would have had a sense, we as the people of God are in warfare against evil forces. He probably would have had a sense of that. But now there is this particular offspring, this particular one, this individual man. And he won't just have enmity toward the serpent, he's going to conquer the serpent. He'll actually subdue the serpent, he'll crush the serpent. Friends, Moses could not possibly have guessed all that this passage entails. We, on the other hand, know exactly what it entails. 
And listen, it's only with subsequent revelation, it's only with the unfolding of redemptive history that we can understand with perfect clarity what is only vaguely hinted at in this passage. If you don't have the rest of Scripture, you cannot put this together. To understand what is anticipated here, we depend on the unfolding of Scripture's revelation over the ages to appreciate what is going on in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, I'll give you a good theological word. It is going to be known as what is called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium. Kids, try to remember that word and impress your parents at lunch when they ask you what it means. The Proto-Evangelium. Proto-first Evangelium gospel. Theologians have referred to this as the first gospel, the first expression of good news. Charles Spurgeon said this is the first gospel sermon ever preached. I think it's something wonderful and ironic that it's preached to Satan, the first gospel sermon that is ever preached. But here it is, and it is in some ways the prologue for the rest of the Bible and for the rest of human history. Everything that proceeds from this point on in Scripture flows from these words in Genesis 3.15. What is anticipated here is the coming of a man from the line of Adam and Eve who would destroy Satan. That man is Jesus Christ. God Himself who became man, born of the woman, to overcome sin and death and to save His people from their bondage to sin and Satan. Christ is presented to us in Scripture as the seed of the woman who destroys the serpent. And so what you have here in Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of the line. And this line becomes the focus of the entire Old Testament. It is the line that will take us all the way to Christ Himself. At least two of the gospel accounts make very much of this. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, they record the line. They take great pains to record the line. All of the gospels, in some sense, make much of the line from which Jesus comes. They're emphasizing who He is and where He came from and what line He proceeds from. This statement from the Lord, that He, this offspring, He will crush your head and you will bruise His heel. These words are like the falling of small stones that start an avalanche. They're like a little tributary, a little spring that runs and runs and grows and grows and eventually becomes a mighty river. In Genesis 3.15, the line begins, and it takes its course, and, and then you get to Abraham in Genesis 12, and the line is picked up more there. You have Abraham, and then you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob, the line, the offspring, the seed, it's moving, it's growing, the promise is picking up momentum, and then you get to David, the line, the line, the offspring, and the picture is beginning to get clearer, the waters are beginning to foam, you can hear the sound of redemption coming as the river thunders over the rocks of the centuries, you have more and more prophecies about the offspring, the sun, the line, anticipation is building and building until finally you get to Matthew 1.1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the line, the offspring, He's come. Everything that was first anticipated in Genesis 3.15, and they went through all these winding ways and grew and expanded, everything that was anticipated in the Old Testament fulfilled in Him. The line has reached its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything 
that the Old Testament anticipated. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and and Luke goes back further, the son of Adam, the son of God. It all starts here in Genesis 3.15. And with each page you turn in your Bible from Genesis 3 on, you feel with growing momentum, growing anticipation, he's coming. He's coming. The promise is coming. The answer is coming. The solution is coming. Deliverance is coming. Victory is coming. The good, the true, and the beautiful is coming. The solution is right around the bend. Anticipation is building. Wrong will be righted. Evil will be destroyed. Death will be swallowed up in victory. It's coming, but it all starts with these words, He shall crush your head. And when this offspring finally comes, this child of Eve, this descendant of the woman, what does He do? What do we see the offspring doing? Well, He breaks Satan's teeth in his mouth. He crushes the wicked one. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2.15, in going to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And there's one more detail in the passage we must consider before closing. What is meant by this statement, and you will bruise his heel? So, so this offspring of the woman will, will crush the serpent's head, will vanquish him, destroy him. And somehow in the process, the serpent will bruise his heel. What is meant by that statement, you will bruise his heel? I don't actually know why that language is chosen, Um, and commentators speculate, what are we to see in the head and the heel thing? I think at the very least there's to be this great contrast. There's enmity between the, the woman and the serpent and between her offspring, his offspring, but in this fight, this seed, he's going to crush Satan's head. And the only blow that he'll reckon against the woman's offspring is he will bruise his heel. There's a great contrast between the different blows that are struck. For the serpent, it will be fatal. It will destroy him. For this offspring, it'll be like nipping at his heel. I think there's something to that. But what more we're to see there, I don't exactly know. That said, I think we know exactly what this envisions happening. This envisions that the Son of God would die, that he would give his life. There is going to be some kind of blow that Satan strikes against this offspring. This envisions the death of the Son of God on behalf of His people to bring about their deliverance. Now, this may be reading too much into the text, but it occurred to me in trying to think of the picture. So, I think the Lord is giving us a picture we're to think about, a serpent crushing the serpent and the heel being exposed. It occurred to me that in order to strike a fatal blow against a serpent, presumably with your foot, to stomp a snake in its head, you would have to expose your heel. Uh, My wife this week was out in the yard with the kids, and they saw this four-foot black snake slithering through the grass. And rather than furnishing me with the most timely and epic sermon illustration I could have possibly had, (laughs) she was not like her Lord. She did not crush the snake. She took a picture of it and put it on Instagram. 
But it occurred to me, it occurred to me, stay with the illustration, it occurred to me that if she was to crush the serpent's head, she'd have to strike at it with her foot, right? And thereby her heel is exposed. A serpent can thereby strike a blow against the heel in the very act of her bringing an end to that serpent, of crushing that serpent. So I wondered, is this what's going on in the death of the Son of God? Was this the way in which Christ would destroy Satan himself? It would be in his own dying, in his own giving up of his body on the cross, exposing himself to a blow as it were. The bruising of the heel was necessary. It was exactly the means through which the Lord would crush the head of the serpent. As Satan is taking his strike at Christ, in that very same act, Christ is bringing an end to the serpent. In exposing himself, dying on the cross, he is crushing the serpent in a way the serpent couldn't possibly have anticipated, in a way in which literally no one in history had anticipated up to that point. No one expected the Son of God to die, and for that to be the way in which He would deal the death blow to the wicked one, that that would be His coronation ceremony through which He would be established as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But it was precisely in dying for His people. It was precisely in giving Himself up. It was precisely in the bruising of His heel, as it were, that Satan's head would be crushed. The bondage of sin and death would be undone that sin's power and Satan's dominion would be shattered and would be broken. Who could have anticipated this? I assure you, not Moses writing this, and not a thousand other sages and prophets. This is the story of redemption. This is what God has written across the centuries, that Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would destroy him who had the power of death that He would break the bondage of Satan and sin over all of God's people, that they might be saved and delivered. Three quick things I wish to say in closing. I have three three things I want us to see. I'm going to develop these. I'm simply going to state them. What should we see in this message and in this passage? Number one, I want you to understand how your Bibles work. I want you to begin to see in this series and in this sermon the intercanonical connections, how the Bible flows as a unified narrative, and how redemptive history builds momentum, climaxing, fulfilling in Christ. I want us to see how all of the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Secondly, I want you to see that in our Christian faith, the faith that we believe, the thing that brings us here today, defines our lives, that in our Christian faith, good triumphs over evil, life over death, light over darkness. The light has come into the world and darkness has not overcome it. I want you to know that God wins in Christ and thereby we win and may we never forget it. We need to see this, those of us struggling with remaining sin, feeling so hopeless about ourselves and discouraged, those of us going through immense hardships and trials and difficulties, 
Uh, those around the world who are facing martyrdom, they need, they need to have this picture. That this great serpent, this great dragon, this wicked one, he loses. He loses. The seed of the woman is overcome. The seed of the woman has crushed his head. We win. Know this world with devil's fill should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. Prince of darkness grim. He's grim. We tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little world word will fell him. We have it here in Genesis 3.15. His doom is sure. It was foretold in the front pages of our Bibles that Christ has the victory and we in Christ will have it also. The third and final word to say. Matters a lot whose offspring you are. You're the offspring of the woman or the offspring of the serpent. The good news is, this line over here, the offspring of the woman, anyone can join that line. So, so we're all born in bondage to sin. We were all following the prince of the power of the air. But what Jesus has been doing is keep snatching children away from Satan and bringing them into Eve's line through regeneration and faith. If you're here this morning, and you're not on the winning team, you can be. You can be. You're in one of two places. Either you have your father Satan, or you are of the offspring of the woman. You become part of the offspring of the woman by believing in her seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save you from your sins. If that's not you, you're of your father the devil, whether you're cognizant of that or not. How's your father treating you? How's your sin working for you? There are some of us here who have had abusive earthly fathers. There's no father more abusive than Satan. He's vicious. He's vicious. He doesn't love you. He wants to destroy you. His design on you is that you would perish. But it doesn't need to be that way for you. You can be delivered from bondage to sin and Satan. You could be given everlasting life. You could become part of the offspring of the woman. You can be saved through her great seed who crushes Satan's sin and bondage if you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in that descendant of Eve, that child of Eve, that son of Adam, that son of God who came to bring about deliverance for Satan's captives, for those who were stuck in bondage to sin's night, those who were held captive to Satan's lies. The Lord has been delivering people from Satan throughout the ages. He can do that for you. You can become part of the line that line that ultimately will triumph in Jesus Christ and that will inherit everlasting life forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the, the story of redemption is so glorious to us. It is past finding out what you have wrought from beginning to end. We thank you those of us who are your people, for not leaving our first parents on their own, not destroying them, 
and bringing what would have been just judgment on the entire human race thereafter. But in great unmerited mercy and love and grace, pursuing them and making this glorious promise. And Father, we thank you for keeping your promise that in the process of time you brought your son, born of a woman, to bring about deliverance for your people. We pray, Father, that we would be freshly excited by what you have done throughout history, what you have done in your Son, and that you would awaken within us fresh hope that victory is ours through Jesus Christ who has triumphed over sin and death and Satan, that in him we also can have the victory over our remaining sin, that we could have victory over Satan's temptations and machinations and his attacks upon us, that through Jesus we can see Satan crushed under our feet. We pray, Father, that we would live and work and walk from this standpoint that our Lord has achieved victory for us, that He has achieved deliverance for us, that in Him we too can experience victory over sin. And Father, for all of us here who still struggle with remaining corruption, I still struggle with so much evil and wrong in the world, we pray that we would freshly hope in this day that's coming where this victory will be in every way final, that he will be finally and fully vanquished, and that we will enjoy victory around the supper of the Lamb in glory forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.